All right. Welcome back to the dinner table. This is Jim Bennett. This is Abby Bennett. And a lot of things to talk about. And one of the things that I want to focus on, uh, this isn't an area that either one of us has any unique expertise on. But I'm fascinated with what's going on in Korea these days. Have you been following any of that? A little bit. I know that they're friends now or something. Yes, they're friends. Well, they were holding hands. Yeah. Kim Jong-un and the South Korean president met together. They talked about reunification. They talked about denuclearization of the Korean peninsula. And my entire life, that's been something that has been a flashpoint that's been ready to explode at any moment. And one of my favorite stories that my my father used to tell was his visit to the demilitarized zone. Were you ever there when he talked about that? Um, yeah, but I don't remember what he said. Well, the, the Korean War never ended. It was a ceasefire. It wasn't a treaty. And so they created a demilitarized zone that's actually the most militarized place in the world. And the village where they signed the ceasefire has been essentially frozen in amber for 50 years. It looks exactly the same as it did 50 years ago when the ceasefire was was signed. And there are three buildings, half of which are in North Korea. Well, the buildings themselves are right on the border, and half the building is in North Korea, half the building is in South Korea. So if it's frozen in amber, then like a couple hundred thousand years from now, scientists could like take the DNA and create a... Jurassic Park scenario. Uh, that, I think, is what they're trying to do. Yeah. So so you could re- bring Kim Jong-un back to life? Yeah. Only then he starts rampaging like, through the park? Like, yeah, Kim Jong-un is like a mosquito, and you could take his DNA and make a dinosaur version of him. I, I think that that's exactly what they're moving toward. Yeah. But as they're trying to kill time before the, the, the Jurassic Korea is brought to life... Um, they they have these these buildings that are stationed with guards, and Dad went in and crossed into North Korea because you can only do that in the building. But if you go out of the building, you'll probably end up getting shot. And it's been interesting because all of the all of the rhetoric from the Trump administration has been nasty towards North Korea to the point where it seemed like the president was about to declare nuclear war via Twitter. Mm-hmm. And now uh, the South Korean president thinks that uh, president that Donald Trump should be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in bringing the Korean peninsula together. What? You all right with that? How would you feel what? if you woke up and found out that Donald Trump had a Nobel Peace Prize? What did he do? Well, Obama got one. Yeah. Uh, Obama got one before he had done anything. He got one like early into his first term. And he hadn't actually done anything. It was more for the promise of what he might do as opposed to what he actually did do. Uh, do you have any interest in Nobel Prize winners? I mean, does that impress you to hear somebody who's won a Nobel Prize? No, because Bob Dylan won one. And that doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> well, what's wrong with Bob Dylan? Yeah, like, I just feel like, really, his, his like, lyrics were that good. To win a Nobel Prize. Like, yeah, they were great, but, like, Nobel Prize worthy? That's like a million-dollar cash bonus as well. That's true. Well, I I was actually shocked when he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, So uh, what I think that means is that the Nobel Prize doesn't necessarily have that. There's a lot of cash attached to it, but not necessarily a lot of cachet. That it's not, you know, the people who... I think for science it does, but for all the other stuff. It's so subjective and 
know. Well, you're a scientist. Are you interested in winning a Nobel Prize for um, biology? Or I'm not. I don't want to do research, and it's yeah, it's it's not really easy. You can't just. Well, I didn't say it was easy, but I'm just saying that in terms of the prestige that it that it gives, but. You look at this, it's easy to beat up on on Donald Trump for all the things he's done wrong, uh, but this might be something he's done right. He didn't do anything, though. What did he do? Well... He tweeted mean stuff. Yes. That's it. Well, you don't think mean stuff tweets? There should be a Nobel Peace Prize or a Nobel Prize for for tweeting. Uh, Or not. It all depends on what's going on. If that was the case, Cher would have won a Nobel Prize ages ago, because her Twitter's amazing. Cher doesn't even spell correctly when no, she tweets. It's, it's incredible. She has the most amazing usage of emojis in her tweets. Okay, so maybe there's a specific emoji peace prize that that we should be focused maybe. on. But in looking at it, uh, do you your brothers read Dilbert quite a lot? Do you ever read Dilbert? The cartoon? Yeah, I guess sometimes. Well, I'm fascinated by Scott Adams, who is the guy who writes Dilbert. And during the 2016 election, he's the only one who got anything right. He predicted the rise of Donald Trump with eerie precision. And he's written a blog post about why President Trump deserves credit for progress in North Korea. What is what credentials does this guy have besides writing Dilbert? Why do we? What other credentials do you need? I don't know. I wouldn't really listen to. Actually, I was going to say Bill Watterson, creator of Calvin Hobbes, but I would totally listen to Bill Watterson. Yeah, Bill Watterson, I, I wish he would come back and keep writing Calvin and Hobbes. But in the absence of Watterson, we have Adams, and he says, here are some things that Donald Trump did in order to improve things in Korea. He said he built a good working relationship with China, with, with, with Japan. Uh, yeah, I, to the China thing, I'm not sure that's true, particularly with the trade sanctions that yeah. he's issuing against China. Uh, he used Syria for missile target practice just in case Kim thought we'd like to save our ammo. He got So in other words, he scared them by going after Syria. He got the UN to agree on sanctions. Uh, he used good cop, bad cop persuasion with Moon expertly playing his part, Moon being the South Whatever. Korean president. Whatever. So none of these are convincing to no. you? No. All well, he did was yell on Twitter. That's all he ever does. Well... So Adams, his whole thing is that this is all part of some master persuasion plan, that Donald Trump is smarter than all of us could possibly know. And I, I have to agree with you. I don't think he is. I don't think I think Donald Trump stumbles from one thing to another. And sometimes he gets some things right almost I think by he accident. Might have smart people around him just by virtue of his position. But he's not a smart man. He well, just is a really lucky, wealthy man. Well, so he's a lucky, wealthy man. Would you be willing to marry a lucky, wealthy man, not necessarily just Donald Trump? Mm, depends on what they look like. Well, um, this week I was talking to a friend of mine. Who, we were talking about Donald Trump's marriage, particularly in the wake of the whole Stormy Daniels mess. And what must Melania be going through? And he was saying, oh, my goodness, this must be so difficult for her. And my reaction is, no, I think... She knew what she was getting into. She may not have realized she was going to be married to be the first lady, but I think this is not necessarily a traditional marriage, that this is a marriage where she knew what the ground rules were and realized the kind of person she was marrying. And he came back with something that I had never heard before. 
it, tur- it turns out that uh, last year, about this time, uh, Melania Trump was addressing a business class at New York University. When she copied... Wait, no. When, when did she copy Michelle Obama's speech? Oh, the, yeah, the Michelle Obama speech was in the 2016 Republican convention. Oh. But this was, she was talking to a business class, and they asked if she would still be with Donald Trump if he was not rich. And her answer was, quote, if I weren't beautiful, do you think he'd be with me? Wow. That's true love. That's true love. Does that not sound like a marriage made in heaven? Yeah, amazing. Well, really, really goals right there. Well, do you think this is a this is a workable marriage that these these two people have a a relationship of trust and can, Why does it matter though? Does like if they get divorced then what why does it matter? It doesn't matter. Uh I don't know that it does matter. Uh, uh we've never really had this kind of experience before. Yeah, we have. It just isn't wasn't as out in the open, I guess, with the internet. Like JFK and Jackie O, like and Bill Clinton and Hillary. Like no no president's marriage is perfect. I don't know why everyone freaks out about Melania and Donald. Well, I'm not asking for a perfect marriage, but it, it sounds to me like this isn't much of a marriage at all. I, I mean, there's been all all kinds of ink spilled about the Clinton marriage. Uh, and I don't know what kind of arrangement they have and whether Hillary is willing to turn a blind eye. Why does it matter, though? As long as they're doing their job, why does their private life any of our business? Well, that's a good Just question. because they're in the public eye doesn't mean that we're entitled to all the details of their marriage. Okay. Um, I, 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 there's a case to be made for that. Uh, it, you know, growing up, the, the whole idea of the first lady and the, and the president sort of being role models for America's youth and everything like that, that was still very much in evidence during my childhood and during my adolescence. And I think that changed fundamentally with the Clinton years and and uh, is, is changing. Even, we're even eliminating the pretense of that necessarily being a requirement in the Trump years. It- it wasn't though. We just didn't know about it. Like you, you read like the history of pretty much any president's marriage, and it's it's not perfect. We just didn't have like the the paparazzi or everything to to show us more detail what was going on. Like it, See, I don't what, know. It's just it's just a, it's a silly argument to say that like oh the Clintons caused the downfall of like morality in the White House when they didn't. It was long gone, like a while. So there was no morality before the Clintons. Well, it, morality is—I I don't know. It's just—it's just a weird thing to say that it's the well, Clintons caused that. Well, that's a good point, and I think you look at the Kennedys and you look at anybody else that has been in the White House who might have kind of come under fire for this we've kind had, of thing. We've had an unmarried president, even. Well, yeah, Garfield. Yeah. Or is it Buchanan? Buchanan was the unmarried president. Was, yeah, I think Buchanan was the bachelor president. Yeah. Why did I think Garfield? But yeah, but how many years ago was that? I don't know, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't. It just doesn't matter. I, I think that marital status doesn't ha- doesn't have to have a bearing on how good of a person you are in any in any aspect. Uh, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I, what I'm what I you know. I'm I'm saying that the, the kind of hypocrisy that happened when you had presidents trying to pretend 
that they were morally upright when they were not is problematic, but at the same time, eliminating that hypocrisy by eliminating the standard doesn't strike me as a great solution either. I mean, you're not a hypocrite if you say, well, I have no standards and I'm a terrible person and that's just who I am, but at least I'm not a hypocrite. I don't think that's necessarily an honorable place to be. We need to take a short break. We'll talk about this when we get back. Welcome back. You look at Donald Trump and he has a unique sort of problem or circumstance that makes this challenging, I think, for his supporters because a huge block of his supporters are evangelical Christians. And these evangelical Christians will follow Donald Trump no matter what he does. And the fact that Donald Trump not only had an affair with a porn star, but paid $130,000 in hush money to the porn star, and now has been forced to admit that he lied about paying that money, that becomes problematic. Much more than the affair, the lying becomes problematic, don't you think? Well, we've already seen that no matter what he does, he has supporters that will back him till the day that he dies. We've already seen that his like level of of um what's what are the polls called that like his approval rating? His approval rating. It's going to hover around 40% or so no matter what. No matter what he does, it won't dip below that because there's people that just don't care that they'll just support him no matter what. Well, that's what he said during the campaign. He said, I could walk out onto Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters. And I think you're seeing that to some degree. But those supporters are the same people who, during the 90s, were screaming and yelling that Bill Clinton having a consensual affair in the Oval Office was beneath the dignity of the office and was actually an impeachable offense. Although at the same time, it wasn't so much that the affair was impeachable, at least this is what I was arguing back then, it was that the lying was impeachable, that he was going before a, you know, in the court system, in a deposition, under oath, saying, no, I did not have an affair, and then it proved that he was, and everybody's saying, well, this is just about sex, when the reality was, for me anyway, it was about the lying. So the fact that Donald Trump just lies with impunity and everybody can see it and everybody knows it and his supporters don't care, particularly supporters who were upset when a Democrat was lying, uh, doesn't that strike you as problematic? Well, they would rather have a lying Republican president than a Democratic one. That's And again, Selective at, a certain, outrage. At, a, at a certain point, I do like obviously I abhor Donald Trump. Um, and I think that what he did was gross. And um, but at a certain point, do your like personal like affairs affect your like ability to be a good president? And I don't know. Well, that's a good question. Right now, I guess they do because he has to go through all this time lost and just like sullying. I don't know the the White House name or whatever. I don't know, but. Does it actually affect his ability to govern and be the president? Uh, That's a good question. And to the extent that it calls into question his ability to devote the proper amount of time to his job, that's significant. Uh, At the same time, it demonstrates, I think, just a fundamental uh, willingness to forego the truth even on small occasions. He's willing to lie about small things, so of course he would be willing to lie about large things. 
Uh, and that's not just about sexual matters. It's about things like, you know, at the outset of his presidency, the idea that he was so freaked out and insisted that more people had come to his inauguration than had come to any other inauguration. That was troubling to me, not because it was blatantly false, but because he wouldn't back down when presented with facts. Is that because he likes to lie, though, or is because he's dumb and insecure? I just think he's not a smart person, and I don't think he realizes what these little lies do to his his per, like his perception in the in the public. I just think he's insecure and wants to be liked, and that's really it. Well, that's a good point. Uh, at the same time, what's the difference there, though? If he's lying, if he's lying because he, well, this is why I hate politics because you can just argue yourself yourself in a circle and none of it changes anything and nothing matters. <laughs> Well, that's one way of looking at it. Let's argue ourselves in a circle and find another way to look at it. Ugh. No, I, I, I can understand that. I think you're not the only one who hates politics. Politics can be extraordinarily frustrating. The problem is all of us have to live in a country that is governed by people who are in the political process. And I think we have a responsibility to speak out and to say something when we see something that is doing damage to our civic life. And I think Donald Trump is doing... I think largely irreparable damage to our civil discourse, not because he's having lots and lots of affairs, but because he is uh, so disconnected from reality, whether because he's dishonest or he's stupid. I think both of those prescriptions are... How did we start out with talking about giving Donald Trump a Nobel Prize and get here? (laughs) That's a good question. Uh, well, and see, that's the challenge is that is that I think the people who are still supporting Donald Trump are doing it because they like some of the things that he's done. And I've got to confess that I like some of the things that he's done. Uh, I, I think he's done them almost by accident. I like what he's done with Utah land use. I like what How has he done it, though. We always say the president did this. The president. No, the people around the president, the people that we don't know their names are doing all the work. Well, we don't know their names because the president keeps firing them and bringing in new people because well, people can't stand to be around this guy people, for more than a month at a time. The people in all of the departments, the, like the, not, the, not even the big names, they're the ones doing all the work. Well, the Secretary of the Interior, Secretary Zinke, was the one who uh, he, he did a good thing and President Trump let him do a good thing. Uh, so you look at that and say, all right, well, is, is that enough? And, and there's a, an article today that appeared in National Review written by David French, who I have a lot of respect for. He was the head of Evangelicals for Mitt during the Mitt Romney campaign. And he kind of looks at things from a religious and an evangelical point of view. And he has written an open letter to the evangelical supporters of Donald Trump that I think sums up a great deal of what we're talking about here. And he concludes the whole thing by saying, oh, I've got to pull it up here. Uh, by asking the people who support him whether or not their support was worth it. And what, what he concludes is, soon enough, the need to defend Trump will pass. He'll be gone from the American scene. Um, then you'll stand in the wreckage of your own reputation and ask yourself, was it worth it? The answer will be as clear then as it should be clear now. It's not, and it never was. Any comment on that? Well, um, I guess from the perspective of an evangelical, I would say maybe it was worth it to have a person who doesn't support abortion in the White House, because that's like one of the big issues that people get hung up on. 
It is, and it's one we could probably devote an entire podcast to, but we're out of time for this one. So we'll just have to leave that question hanging for our listeners out there. And cliffhanger. It's a cliffhanger, and we can address the next issue as we... Spoiler alert, nothing will be resolved, ever. Oh, oh well, that's, that's a really uplifting way to end this. But uh, this is Jim Bennett. And Abby Bennett. And we'll see you next week on Dinner Table Politics. Peace out. We need to take a short break. We'll talk about this. Welcome back.